श्री गुरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाय श्री श्री गौ राधा माधव की जाय गौर भक्त वृंद की जाय श्रीमद भगवद गीता की जाय श्री श्री कृष्ण अर्जुन की जाय बहुत प्रेम आनंदे बोलो सो गुड इवनिंग एवरीवन नाइस टू बी हियर अगेन एंड टू बी हियर ऑन द ओकेजन ऑफ द वीकली भगवद गीता discourse i'm fortunate and blessed to be able to be a substitute teacher today <laughs> for the classes that are weekly conducted by his grace shri mandulal chandradas uh many of you have uh, come to his classes here this his house his bhaktiras's house and and um through those classes also come to uh to know me and um so we're very um proud of his uh outreach and honored as i say to be a substitute teacher tonight for bhagavad gita and as i understand it the uh how many of you have never heard of the bhagavad gita because there may be some new persons here okay very good and um so a word about that bhagavad gita 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 means song and bhagavad means god so it means the song of god it's a very um uh probably the most well known of the sacred texts of the hindus kind of like the bible of hinduism if you will and um it's consists of 18 chapters about 700 uh, verses and um it to give some comparison i th- i think with cross culturally with the prominent i said it's the bible of hinduism so there's the bible of you know christianity which is one of the dominant uh, religious faces of of uh, north america and other parts comparatively i would say that the while the bible speaks much to us about belief the gita speaks much to us about the nature of being mm-hmm. and by that i mean to say that it's a very philosophical book It talks about the nature of existence the nature of what it means to exist as an entity as we do and in such a way it speaks about the nature of our being that that naturally fosters a kind of a theological thinking if you will and a believing hmm, in something that is not perhaps immediately at our disposal to experience we can experience ourselves to some extent and the gita wants us to experience it in a deep sense it speaks of us as a unit of being of knowing and of loving or with loving potential hmm? sat chit ananda the terms are in, in sanskrit and careful study of 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 that reveals that the fact that the ananda feature or the loving aspect or potential of ourselves um 
requires, if you will, a significant other. But because our being as a unit of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, or being, loving, and knowing is something that transcends the biological death, consciousness in this context that we are constituted of is is different from matter and that all forms of material stuff is here today and kind of gone tomorrow and it comes and goes and we observe the coming and going we're constant and that constancy uh, uh, well I should say transcends as I say biological death it's kind of a funny way to put it but it it, it remains while the things the, the things come and go but we don't the best things in life are not things and so we're we're not a thing, so to speak. We're that which gives things names and meanings and value and so forth. The subjective side of of life that gives the objective side some sense of meaning and value. And so, given that we're of that nature, then and we have a loving potential as a unit of being and knowing. There has to be, the implication is, a significant other that also is constituted of consciousness, not of matter. Like I might have a significant other who's my friend, my daughter, my husband, and so on and so forth. But those senses of self are as transient as, as my sense of self that's defined by, I have a child, I'm a mother. Hmm? I have a husband. I'm a wife. Um, I have I have a, a, a wife. I'm a husband. These things are. I'm American. I'm a woman. I'm a man. These are transient. Hmm. Those things change. Even we can change our gender. Said right. Person wrote to me. I'm a transgender. How can I participate in your group? I said, Come on in. Just pick one, and you know, they're all here today and gone tomorrow. That a self that transcends these uh, identities of I'm American, I'm a woman, I'm a man. Um, and so that we have to find a significant other, if you will, in that transcendent realm. So, to be brief here, cut to the chase, when it speaks about the nature of being, it does so and what we are constituted of as an entity, hmm, in such a way that naturally fosters from that philosophical discourse on the nature of being a theological kind of thinking, a belief then arises out of it, and there must be a significant other. Hmm? Um, and, And so while the philosophy of the Gita is very beautiful in that when we hear it, we start to think, yeah, it's talking about me, and it's talking about the world the way it really is. If I look beneath the covers, so to speak, hmm? it, it, in other words, it speaks to us about things that are before our eyes that we maybe couldn't see, hmm? and it opens our eyes to things that we can look at from another angle now and go, yes, that's really the way it is. It's very confirming in that way, rather than only speaking about something that you should believe in, and after death you're going to go find it and so forth, 
by speaking about the nature of being, it speaks about we can start to see, yeah, that is the way things seem to work if I look a little more deeply. And, and so that's very profound. And then it fosters in us naturally uh, a, a belief in the more that it speaks about, because it also speaks about not only what we're like, but what we're like in our, uh, what we have the potential to be as a lover, hmm? a lover of God, so to speak. So God comes into the picture also. And then the, the discussion of the of the Gita that's been going on here for, well, forever, I guess, uh, and that I'm just like substituting here, as I say, uh, was uh, the, the last class, as I understand it, more or less concluded the ninth chapter. It's like the, the zenith of the chap of the text. I said it was eighteen chapters, so the ninth chapter is right in the middle there, and that's where you put you, know, you put the secret, you know, in the middle of the book, and then you close it to hide it away. So, the secret is there. So it reaches a theological zenith at this point, hmm? and that significant other, who is really the speaker of the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God speaking not only about the nature of our being as a unit of eternity, knowledge, and bliss, but about his own nature. And he spoke about it in, in, in a way that is the only way he can speak about it, in relation to bhakti or devotion and those who love him. Hmm? Because, excuse me, the significant other needs a significant other as well. In other words, love is a reciprocal kind of affair. So uh, bhakti, or the yoga of love, if you will, is in a sense one with the object of love, in this case, Krishna. Hmm? You can't have a teacher without students, so you can't have an object of love without love. You You can't have love without the object of love. So it's a very interesting um, uh, concept, if you will, um, where this wise love of God is, in a way, synonymous with God himself. And Krishna's been speaking about that. In this chapter, the ninth chapter that's just passed, he gives this, he he, he draws, if you will, this canvas. Hmm? He says that I. He it's a. He posits a panentheistic uh, worldview. Panentheistic means. Pantheistic means, of course, the world is God. Panentheistic means the world is God, and God is also beyond the world. He is the world, and more than the world, something like that. Hmm? He's one with the world, and different from the world at the same time. So this is, in Sanskrit, this has been termed achintya beda beda. Hmm? He's given that in the ninth chapter. In the beginning, he draws kind of a canvas um, on which the art of loving him is is manifest, and he starts to speak about himself by way of speaking about those who love him, which is which is natural, natural and understandable, how they think of him and so forth. And then how those, those who don't think of him, how they think and, and so on. So he gets very emotional in this chapter, hmm? speaking about the love of his devotees. And he kind of loses it almost. Uh, and, and, and he shows 
by his speaking the power of wise love, if you will, which we call bhakti yoga, to uh, kind of kind of dethrone him, to bring God down off the throne, so to speak, and make him accessible hmm? uh, for intimacy of exchange and so forth. And he gets wrapped up in that, very uh, very emotional, and w- and he starts to speak about a concept. A, 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 uh, of of loving him that is so powerful uh, it's compared to uh, like like if a young girl falls in love with a young boy and there's nothing you can do to get in the way of it. If you try to get in the way of it, it only serves to accent it and accelerate it. If the mother says, you cannot go out with that boy, she's out the window, you know, <laughs> for sure. You know, nothing can, can check it. Uh, so uh, he's speaking like this, and he, and he carries it over into the 10th chapter in the beginning. With great emotion, he speaks about, a, he kind of, kind of says, like, I'm God. You know, that's true. But there's more to me than that. Hmm? That's boring, hmm? because as God, I can't get close to anyone. Because if, if you get too close, you say, "Oh my God, <laughs> it's God." <laughs> and, and, and so, but 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 he is, you know, the perfect object of love. So he wants to love, and love requires that that you know we have to move from agape, use a Greek term you know, to a transcendental eros, if you will. That's a very interesting idea. Uh, what I mean by it at least, at least is that a love in intimacy. And so for there to be a love of intimacy between, let's say, the finite and the infinite, how will that take place? Because if he maintains, the infinite maintains its infinite status in all respects and appearance and so forth, as I said earlier, the closer we get, the more we'll be distanced. We'll think, I'm sitting next to God. I've got to sit back. I've got to move back. So in order for the finite to come close, and that's really what love's about, isn't it? The closer we get to somebody, the more we love them. Hmm? You know, we have, we can love in, in reverence, in, in awe, or we can love in... In, uh, in intimacy, uh, and so th- to experience the full face of love in relation to the absolute, the infinite, the infinite has to take on a finite-like appearance. Hmm? And this, this is this this is accomplished by the power of the love in bhakti on the part of the devotee, hmm? and so the Godhead. The Godhead's omniscience, if you will, is kind of suppressed by the power of the love of his devotee and gets lost in that and loses almost a sense of his Godhood and he can be no longer alone, if you will, the one who's different from everyone else. Hmm? Um, so the idea, a theological idea is given here of like God when he wants to be himself, rather than just God, when he could just 
kick back and so forth. Who's he going to be with at that time? What kind of, what kind of persons? What kind of what kind of bhakti would, would uh, tip the scales like that to create an equality, if you will, between God and devotee, hmm? and uh, like in like for example in romantic love or friend friendly love, something like that. Um, so it's a very powerful section of the Gita, and it is, it is. Uh, we, we call it we call it madhurya. Madhurya means sweet. So the idea is something like this: that if that entity that is that from which everything is flowing, the source of everything, hmm, um. Uh, we enter into an intimate relationship and in order for that to happen, that source takes on a finite-like appearance. Hmm? In other words, if God starts to act like a human and fall in love, falling in love is kind of a, well, it's a fallen position. It's a weakness. It's a strong weakness. It's a very strong weakness. Hmm? So God falling in love, something like this, uh, this is very sweet. So the Krishna is depicted like that. The Godhead is depicted like this in a kind of an ordinary way, in an ordinary setting. And it's very charming because of the fact of his Aishvarya or Godhood. In other words, if I just act, if I fall in love with somebody, it's not going to be a big deal. It might be, considering <laughs> I'm not supposed to do that. But if, a, if, a, if an ordinary person does, well, it happens every day. Right mm. now, you have these yogis who are meditating on Krishna and, and meditation, and controlling their minds and their senses and so forth, and performing austerities and and people performing sacrifices and so forth to understand God and and so on. And then they find out God fell in love, kind of tips the scales for them. What what is that? Mm. There's a certain kind of yogic approach to God that that, that causes that to happen and. And it's very extraordinary, but it's very charming hmm? at the same time. If, if I do that, it's no big deal. But if God starts to act like one of us, so to speak, whereby he becomes so accessible, that's we call that madhurya, very sweet, very charming. Hmm? So this side of the godhood is coming out, but it's very beautifully presented here. The Krishna is... Well, Vyas, the author here, is writing you know, about the conversation between Krishna and his friend Arjuna that the Gita is constituted of, is walking a tightrope. Hmm? He's walking a theological tightrope between what we call Aishvarya and Madhurya. Hmm? In other words, between the Godhood of the Godhead, which is awe-inspiring, whoa, and this this intimate expression of the God, which is human-like, and and uh, charming, and uh, and you can't have one without the other, as I'm explaining. If there's no background that it's God doing this, like for example, Krishna is depicted as 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 in in his leela, in his divine play, as as being a little mischievous. Hmm? Stealing butter from the neighbors and and, and so forth, uh, 
so the point is that why is that charming? If a child steals, you think, my kid's got bad habits. What, what am I going to do? But if God steals, he owns everything. So if God steals, we call that play. If I own everything, everything belongs to me, but I steal, hmm, you know, that's just play, right? That's, so I could just be, I'm the owner of everything. But then, but then if, I, if I steal and do other things, so to speak, that, that's, very, that's very extraordinary. Hmm? It means you're acting like us. We do that kind of a thing. You're getting close to us and so forth. So this is a very high theological concept. Hmm? And it could be easily misunderstood. Um, so he walked a tightrope by way of speaking about the godhood of the Godhead and then speaking about this human-like, if you will, manifestation of the Godhead that, in which he is contacted through the intimacy of, 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 of the yoga, of, of, of love. And then he'll go back to the Godhead's Godhood and then back and forth, back and forth, walking like a tightrope so that we kind of don't, we 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 understand that charming idea and the philosophical kind of canvas on which that play is being uh, drawn, if you will. We have here the idea of the God who so God is everywhere. So if you're everywhere, but I said many times, how can you move? So, but here the Krishna is moving. He's everywhere. He's moving. Hmm? This is charming. It's very interesting. It's a deep philosophical concept. He's moving on the force of devotion. They've taken him off his throne, so to speak, by the force of their bhakti, their love. Hmm? Hmm? They, in other words, let's say God. So, what do people approach God for? Well, I want things. I think things are important, so I ask God for things. That's a kind of a childish idea of religion. Yeah. I'm not a thing, as I said earlier, but I think that things will make, by adding things onto my life, I'll be better off. But I, I'm not a thing. What are things going to do for me? Hmm? I give meaning to things. What meaning will things give to me? No thing. <laughs> no, hmm. they will not incre in increase my value. Hmm. My sense of what what is really valuable will be lost in the context of getting absorbed in in things. I lose a sense of myself. Hmm. But some people approach God for things. Well, at least you approach God. That's pretty good. But boy, you're asking for the wrong thing. Hmm. So, I mean, how interesting is that? God, I'm saying it in a crude way, obviously, please give me things that I might be more absorbed in the ignorance of identifying with things and thinking that they increase, increase my value and define me. What a prayer. And, you know, the, the fact that you pray, well, that's good, but it's not a very wise or well-thought-out kind of approach. It's got to begin somewhere. Hmm? And so we, our present sense of identity is very much defined by things and our attachments to them. That's our predicament. And so when we lose certain things, we feel like myself is being lost. 
what will I do without her? She's leaving. What, you know, I'm defined by my relationship, my, for example, or my house. The bank is foreclosing. I'm, I'm, what am I now? You know, I was so, so I had the house that was bigger than the Joneses, you know, and, and I had an identity from that. Now the bank is foreclosing. What, what's my position? Who am I? What am? So we're kind of defined, unfortunately, by things and our attachment to them. And when we start to lose them, we feel like we're losing ourselves. And so we, we pray to God, give me back myself. Hmm? Give me some things. Let my house be saved. You know, I mean, it's understandable, but it's 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 not the full. It's not a it's not a approach to God, if you will, that's very attractive to God. Hmm? You're, it's not even about what you really are. What to speak about what God is about? If if I am a unit of consciousness, hmm? like a ray, if you will, of the sun of consciousness, what is the sun? So, I'm interested in things. I'm not even interested about myself, my real self. Hmm? You understand? Because I'm really not the guy on the street who's got, you know, the best house, and I lived in that identity. People said he's the guy with the best house. He's, a guy, you know, or whatever it is. That's not what I am. Hmm? And so. To come out of that, then what would we do? We come away from that and we think, I'm, things are not the best thing, so let me approach God for something more meaningful. Things are here today and gone tomorrow. My identity in this world, based on my attachments, is temporary and fleeting. Whether it's going to be the bank foreclosing on me, my wife divorcing me, my kids turning out to be the antithesis of what I, what I thought they would be. Um, and dying. Hmm? Uh, so what, what? So to shift then, and, and rather than to pray for things, I might think to pray. Let me transcend things. Let me know. Let me know myself. Know what I am. That is an enduring. Uh, in an enduring sense. What am I beyond an American man or a woman? What is what is that? What is I have a sense that of an identity, and I have an identity in relation to things. That's false. So what am I independent of those things? Hmm? I I have a sense that I I, I would be an enduring entity then, hmm? one that would endure. So you might approach God for. Eternity, to live in eternity. I mean, that'd be good. But I could endure in eternity and uh, and be self-content. Hmm? After all, as I've said, matter only matters, you know. What's the matter with matter? Think about it. What's the matter with matter? <laughs> we're the matter with matter. I mean, if you, if you, if you, in other words, let's say, let's say you look into the atom, okay, and then they go, "What's the matter with matter? It's acting differently than we thought it did. It should. 
it's 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 like not working the way we 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 think matter works. Hmm? First, it's a what is it? Wave, and then it's a particle. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Hmm? It's a wave, and it's a particle. How can it be? It's what's the matter with matter? It's you, hmm? right? It's the observer. Hmm? It's consciousness. This is what's matter with matter. It's a. a it's us, uh, we, we, and we matter, and we make matter matter. We give meaning to matter, and, and so, so know thyself, hmm? independent of matter. Hmm? We we could sense it. We could kind of arrive at it theoretically. We have a sense inborn in us, intuitive, throughout human society, that there's more to me than what meets the eye and the mind. Hmm? We are kind of looking for the more, and I'm the more. Hmm? The consciousness is the more. And so we might want to like sort that out and realize the extent to which we exist, which would end all anxiety, all fear. There's a kind of all-pervading kind of fear that accompanies our sense of identity that is drawn from attachment to things. Because the the clock is ticking. Hmm? Time I am, Krishna says in the Gita. Taking away everything. Hmm? And the identity that goes along with that. So fear, some anxiety, it's it's woven into the fabric of our material uh, sense of self problem. So to to know, I mean to realize the extent to which we exist, this is the end of all fear, the end of all anxiety. So I might say, I want to be free from all suffering. Suffering comes from attachment to things. And the Gita Krishna says, Dukkayonayevate. He says the womb of dukkha, of suffering. Hmm? Dukkha yonayebate. Hmm? The senses attached to objects of sight and touch and smell and taste. This is the womb of suffering. You want something, that's a suffering. I want it, I don't have it. You get it, then you have to worry about losing it. And you lose it, for sure. For sure, hmm? and the more you like it, the more problematic that is. <laughs> hmm? So this is so such, this is a this is a problem. Hmm? This is not some belief here. You understand? I didn't have to convince you of that. <laughs> right? This is what I say. He's talking about the nature of being. Hmm? This is everybody's experience. And everybody wants to end suffering, and this is getting to the root of that. Hmm? Yoga is for that. So some people approach God for things, some people a little wiser, they approach God to lose their attachment to things hmm? that's causing them suffering. They want to end suffering in this underlying kind of suffering that just in the fabric of our material being is 
just an anxiety that I won't, I won't exist, and you won't, in terms of the se- your sense of self that's derived from attachment to things. So to try to transcend that, if you will, detachment, letting go of things, hmm, is a kind of giving, because it's a ceasing from taking, exploiting, and defining oneself by attaching oneself to things as if they're mine, when nothing belongs to us. If, when, as soon as I say it's mine, here an illusion. Nothing belongs to us. You can't keep it. If it's yours, then... Oh, it's a kind of criminal uh, behavior, if you will. So, to end that, it's kind of an abstract way of loving, not taking, not exploiting. If I don't exploit, well, um, I'm I'm starting to be kinder, right? And so, by moving away from that, some people perform a kind of a yoga for this. So they approach the Godhead not for things, but for transcending the the identity based on attachment to things. And they derive from this type of yoga the kind of wisdom that I'm speaking about. And it starts to permeate and and it's cultivated by a kind of like a uh, by by dhyan, by meditation and so forth. And they get what? The end of suffering. Sounds good, right? End all suffering. To be self-content. Hmm? I mean, in, in, that means to transcend what we call reincarnation. Birth and death, samsara. Hmm? The cycle of birth and death. This going round and round and round. Now I'm a man, and now I'm a woman. Hmm? Now I'm a man, now I'm a woman, now I'm an Indian, now I'm an American, now I'm this, now I'm... Round and round and hmm? round and round and round in the circle game. That's what it is. Like a up and down and round, round and round. <laughs> uh, so to transcend that sounds profound. It is. But now we step back for a moment at what we were talking about earlier. What does it mean to God if we pray to God for things? How attractive to God is that? I'm not even interested in myself, in a a, a real sense of self. I'm interested in the illusory sense of self and, and facilitating that. That's my whole problem, and I'm asking God to help me in that. Okay. Uh, I suppose we could do that. You know, we try to do it in a way that will somehow let you see the folly of that. Hmm? Now we go to the next step, right? Person seen through the folly of that, approaching God for things, and wants to transcend the attachment to things and the identity, the false identity that's derived from it, from such attachment. Okay, you're getting closer to God because why? You're getting closer to yourself, and you are not matter, you are consciousness. You are a ray, if you will, of the sun of consciousness, so you're getting a little closer to what God's really all about. Hmm? You're becoming like 
you, you are understanding that you're a, you're a spark rather than you're, I don't know, smoke, you know, or you're, you've kind of been extinguished on, on, the, on the lands, so to speak. The more we're attached to matter, the more we become like matter, and the less we matter. That's a fact. The less we matter, no matter how, you know, we may exercise, masturbate our mind hmm, to come up with interesting ideas and so forth, the, the more we, by doing so, we become solidified in our attachments to things, the less we matter. Hmm? The more we distinguish ourselves as, as, as that which matters, which gives meaning to matter, as I say, the more we start to matter. Hmm? more life becomes m- meaningful and inherently valuable, and the less we suffer. So, and God doesn't suffer, so we're coming close to God. It's like a, like a godly type of, of, of life. No suffering. Living forever. In eternal peace. When I come to this position, I feel an identity with all beings in terms of the, the fabric of their being. You follow me? I feel like... There's no difference between you and me. There's an appearance of difference only. And it's in your mind. And you've defined yourself thereby. But as I contact that which I'm about and you happen to be about, all life is about the same thing, it constitutes the same thing, there's a bond that could never, ever be arrived at by any type of philanthropic, altruistic activity, any type of mental or intellectual adjustment to try to arrive at a, a unity of all beings, a set, we're all humans, this transcends the limits of that. Because consciousness transcends, well, humanity also. I could say, you know, all, we should love all humans. Hmm? What's for dinner? What might the cow say? What might the chicken say? So you know, so it, it transcending that, hmm? a, bond, a unity with all uh, life. What, what is the life? Life is the consciousness. Something like that. You, you can't arrive at at, at this um, mentally. You can theoretically arrive at it in such a way that you'd have impetus to act in a particular way which would then eventually afford you that experience. Hmm? So, immense sense of compassion hmm? and and tolerance, patience, and a a general idea of love. Hmm? Love, a universal love, and so forth. This is nice. Hmm? You're becoming much closer to God, right, than just asking God for things. But, hmm, how close? If I ask for things, I'm not getting too close. If I ask for to, to transcend attachment to things and live eternally, I'm closer, I'm God-like. But what's my motivation here? One motivation is I want something. I want things. The other motivation is I've realized that wanting things is a source of suffering. Therefore, 
I don't want to suffer. So, dear God, give me things. Okay. Dear God, end my suffering. Now, the latter is much more profound than the former, but it's about me. Hmm? You could say, well, it's about what you really are, rather than a false sense of you. So, that's pretty profound. But still, but still, in bhakti, and this is what coming out in, in this section of the Gita in particular, the idea is, here's this Godhead, the source of everything. Hmm? He's talking about a realm of experience within transcendence in which the, the part and the whole have a dynamic unity in which the whole looks like one of the parts, almost. And so there's a possibility for this intimacy and loving uh, union, a dynamic union, hmm? where you and I become a we, and it's, we're still there, but we're, well, we're we. It's no longer you and I. But you and I are there. You become I, I become you. There's two, but the two are one, and, and so forth. Now, if I'm looking for end suffering, how close is that going to get me to that experience? If I can't have everything, this is the material, I want to get things, things, as much things as I can. If I realize I can't have everything, so I say I don't want anything. This is the polar opposite, right? Hmm? We're looking for something here that beyond the, a reaction. A reaction to a problem is not the solution. You follow me? There's a problem. I react to it. So, you know, Hegelian terms, well, there's a, what does he say? There's a thesis, there's the antithesis, and then there's the synthesis. So the thesis is, I want something. The antithesis is, I don't want anything. That's the source of suffering. Hmm? That can move me profoundly in a spiritual direction. But what's talked about here in the Gita is now to come to some kind of synthesis. Oh. I'll give you another idea here. So people who say they don't want anything, they can go so far in that as to say there is no thing. There is no objective world. You understand? There is no objective world. There is no matter. This is Advaita Vedanta, for example. World denying. This is a hard actually pill to swallow. It's a real it's a problem in that particular um, philosophy, if you will. There is no world. Hmm? There are no things. Hmm? There is a world. There is an objective world. And there is a subjective component. We're the subjective component. Hmm? How can you live in the world? Hmm? As a taker? No. Hmm? The world will continually teach you, you can't live, die, and die again, and die again. Nothing belongs to you, die again. This is samsara, birth and death, birth and death, birth and death. Hmm? So you say, okay, I don't want to die, enough, enough. <laughs> I've died enough times. Then, then you must die to the ego of taking, being a taker. 
okay, that's the, I got to put my head on the guillotine here and, and kill my ego. Hmm? Stop being a taker. All right, I'll do that. I'll stop taking. Hmm? But the Gita says, stopping from taking is one thing, but giving, that's another thing. Hmm? Now giving, that's getting much closer to God. Stopping from taking is part of giving, but actually giving. Hmm? Love is about giving. Love is not about stopping from suffering. Love is not about running away from problems. Love has the power to turn faults into ornaments. Hmm? Love, and love of God, wise love, has the power to make the world, which was a place of suffering because of our attachment to things, vishvam purnam sukhayate, says, into an abode of happiness. Hmm? How to live in the world, but not be of the world. Hmm? We're coming in the direction of the synthesis. We're getting much closer to God now. We, we, we became like God in that we identified with ourselves as consciousness rather than matter, and God is consciousness. But what is the consciousness of consciousness? I mean, that's a, just a far-out idea. Uh, I am consciousness. I am not matter. I give meaning to matter, and so forth and so on. Hmm? This is like the 101, if you will, of yoga, of, 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 of the Eastern <coughs> discipline of, of disciplines of the Gita. Hmm? This is 101. We want to go to like, you know, 1,008 uh, within there. What is the possibility that lies within the knowing that I am consciousness and furthermore, that I have a potential for loving. Hmm? The potential for loving will not be fulfilled simply by expressing that by way of not taking. That's part of loving. Hmm? Not taking, not taking. I don't want anything. Hmm? But it's not the full measure of that. Hmm? So when I stop taking in a yogic context and so forth, I find this unity with all beings. I was talking this compassion, love of that nature. I care for everyone, everything. I see the suffering of others as if it was my own and, and so on. Hmm? I don't feel this is my family and here's my fence and so forth. We don't, we don't think like that. We don't experience life like that. Hmm? There's, but that unity is only half of the equation. We pine for unity. Don't we sense that reality must be, at its heart, a, a unity, and something's getting in the way of us all being unified? So we kind of look for a unity, but we also look for a diversity. Hmm? We want to be one, but we want to be a little different too. <laughs> but not in a way that the difference will compromise the oneness. That's what we're experiencing here on this plane. Our difference, which is a false difference, derived from attachment to things that makes me think this is good and you think that thing's bad because it's not yours, but it's mine, <laughs> or something like that. This is compromises the unity. But if we come to a real unity of, of, of that we're all consciousness, now to move within that and find the possibility of diversity of expression 
within the realm of consciousness. Now we're starting to exercise the loving potential of the self. There was a being hmm, aspect of the self, and there was a knowing that I be, and nothing can get in the way of that. I live forever, I'm eternal, I'm a self, I'm a unit of consciousness. Hmm? I, I exist, I know that I exist, and I have a, I have a purpose for existing, and the purpose is, is, is loving. I have a potential for loving. So the more we move in the direction of that, the more this significant other starts to appear. There starts to appear a differentiation within the unity. Hmm? And then a possibility for, for love. And then a becoming one within the context of that di- diversity with, for example, the Godhead who's different from us and that he's big, we're small, something like that. But but if there's a there's a unity and a diversity that's that's like I want to say simultaneous because the more we're pursuing the love of God means what I don't want things from God neither neither do I want to end stop suffering from things but I want to love God if you come to me and say I want your things I say okay <laughs> that's what you're here for you want my things. All right, give them something and send them away. You know, somebody comes to the door and they're all, you know, they want to sell something. They really want your money, whatever. So you give them something. And you know. somebody else comes and says, "I don't want anything you've got." You say, "Okay, come on in." <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't want what you've got. I but I want your knowledge by which you've got everything, hmm? by which you control everything. That I can be in control. Something like that. Okay. Hmm? But if someone comes to the door and says, I don't want anything, I want, I love you. That's a very different approach, right? If I approach for things, which is ignorance, if I approach for knowledge, which is wise, that's another thing. But if I approach for love, oh, that's how much you're going to get in. How much am I going to open the door? And everybody's coming to me and say, I want things. And then a few people are coming and saying, I don't want things. I want. I want the knowledge by which uh, the, I, I will know experientially that I endure forever. Hmm? That's what I want. Can you give me that? Yeah, I can give you that. Take it. Hmm? I mean, how much does that turn the Godhead on? How much does that? You know, it's interesting. It's well, you're wise and that you're smart, smart guy. You know, you're not attached to things. So take it. Take eternity. Go go for it. Anything else? You know, I mean, here's the Godhead. He, but he, what is the Godhead living for? For love. Hmm? Why are there many? For loving. The one becomes many. For loving. So that who's that rare person going to come knock on the door and say, I want love only? And, and, and that person is so rare that the door is just flung open. Come in. Come right in. Hmm? That you want. And you think that's possible. Come in. They said, if you love someone, they'll tell you all their secrets. You don't have to believe in that, do you? It's true. You know it. If someone loves you, then you, you tell them everything about yourself. So bhakti, is. this is a certain type of approach to the God that's being talked about in this chapter. Hmm? Very beautiful, very charming. 
when they approach me in that way, they get me. And in the context of getting me, all suffering ends, just incidentally, as a byproduct of that. The transcendence of attachment to things and the false identity derived from that is automatically overcome. The sense that I am, that I exist beyond a fleeting sense of identity that I'm American or I'm Indian is realized and something more is realized. I am yours and you are mine even. Prem, this kind of love that's talked about in this chapter is characterized by mamata, this minus, minus. This minus is a plus. Minus, you're mine. Hmm? You're, you, for me to say to God, you're mine, you be, you're, you're mine. I mean, this, this is then the God that is, is really uh, accessible uh, it, it, to reach this pitch. This is possible in bhakti. And this is where Krishna has gone in the Gita in this chapter. And he starts to talk about that and he kind of loses his, his, his balance. They love me like this. I am their, their love. Their love, that kind of love defines me. It, it's what makes me accessible hmm? in intimacy and so forth. And then he moves into the 10th chapter. Hmm? He's gone so deep on this like Madhurya side, the sweet side. Now he has to start talking about the other side so it will so be some balance. I'm God after all, but I... I I lose my, I lo- in relation to my devotees, I lose my godhood, I, my sense of it. I'm so drawn by how they've approached me hmm? that, that I, 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 I feel that, that uh, unity with, 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 with them, I feel almost fine. I, I fall in love. So he moves from that and he, and he goes in the direction of speaking about uh, his godhood, so to speak. It's a very nice chapter, the tenth chapter. It overflows from the ninth chapter, and the culmination of what's talked about in the ninth chapter is found in the beginning of the tenth chapter. And then Arjun's mind, who's the, who's this listening to the song of God, the other character in the book, Krishna and Arjun, he says, "Wow, this is incredible, absolutely incredible." Hmm? His mind is blown from what he's heard. And he says, how can I get a handle on this? I mean, what you're saying is very extraordinary. How can I get a handle on that? I'm in this world here, and you're talking about a very transcendent idea. Hmm? It's an idea that, as I said, is the, it talks about the consciousness of consciousness. It's beyond knowing that I'm consciousness, I'm not matter, uh, you know, which is big enough. We did that in the earlier chapters, now you've taken me like into the realm of consciousness where you, the source of consciousness, be- develops a loving union with with the de- with it, with your devotee, and it's almost as if you're not God, but you are God. It's very confusing, and, and but it's a phenomenal, I- extraordinary idea. Uh, how can I like start to like approach that, if you will? So the very highest ideas of, of the bhakti, you know, tradition, bhakti yoga, Krishna bhakti, are given in this ninth chapter, and they, they, they override, overlap into the beginning of the tenth chapter, and then the author wants to bring it down to like the ground, the ground. Hmm? So Arjun says, 
look, I'm in this world and I'm attached to things. You know, he doesn't quite say that, but it's just the implication. So where do I begin in all of this? How can I start to see you and, and approach you in, in, in love in relation to things? How's that? Hmm? Uh, that's my realm of experience. You're talking about a very high realm. I'm in the realm of things, so how to find you here? So from a very transcendent position, Krishna begins to speak about an imminent position, the imminence and the transcendence of the God. And as I said earlier, this is a panentheistic worldview. So God is the world, hmm? and God is transcendent to the world at the same time. Now, there's a way in which we can understand the imminence of God hmm, and contact, so to speak, God in the world, in our observation of and in our interaction with nature, such that it will start to bring us in the direction of the transcendent reality of the Godhead. So this is a very nice idea. A kind of animism is postulated here. A nature worship worship of oceans, worship of mountains, worship of trees, and so forth. These are going to be talked about. It's very beautiful, but in, a, in such a way hmm, that if you approach it in this way, it doesn't end in animism. Animism is a, is a kind of, a, a, is beautiful, nature worship, and so forth, but unto itself, it doesn't rise to the transcendental heights, if you will, that have been talked about earlier today tonight. So how to, but nonetheless, that is incorporated within us, within this transcendent idea is this imminent idea. So how to engage in a kind of animism, which would be kind of easy in a sense, where's Krishna? You know, okay, it sounds great, how do I do that? You know, so Arjuna's kind of asking like that, so Krishna's reciprocating, he says, well, of bodies of water, I am the ocean. I live in, among other places, these days, in California. One of our monasteries is there. It's in upper northern California, on the coast, We're about 13 miles from the ocean. So if you take from our Redwood Forest Monastery there, some of you have been there, a uh, very peaceful, beautiful place, you drive to the ocean. When you get to the ocean, it's like, oh, Wow, it's real beautiful. I mean, that you're up, up above, and you look down, there's a black sand there, and there it is. You just came to the end of the world, and there's an ocean. You, know, you came out of the trees, and it's a very aha moment, right? Hmm? So what Krishna's speaking about in this chapter is those how to, how to hone those aha moments, if you will, that derive from interfacing with powerful manifestations of nature hmm? that he says represent me of bodies of water and the ocean and anybody goes to the ocean and you go and if you just stop for a moment and you think if you're not like just you know distracted by bikinis or you know volleyball or whatever you know you know you just stand on the beach and there's no one around to distract you, you got to think, I'm small. I'm so small. Hmm? 
Where does it go? How far, you know? We live there in the redwoods, so you go walk in the redwood forest, you know, big, big, big old growth, you know, bigger, biggest, you know, biggest, bigger than a car. You walk through there and you start to feel like, I'm not the subject here. <laughs> I'm the object here. That's very different because we, we, we tend to think, I'm the subject, matters the object for me to use for my purposes. And there's some truth to that, but it's not the whole picture. Hmm? We are superior to matter in a sense because we're consciousness, but we're also very small. Hmm? Hmm? And there's a source of consciousness that's very big. We and matter should be engaged in the service of our source. Not that I should leave out the source and I'll engage matter for my purposes. Hmm? So I'll go into the beautiful redwood forest with a chainsaw. Hmm, you know, and... and deforest the whole thing and so forth and uh, look at me I, I you know I can I'll try to conquer nature and uh, tame her and uh, be the lord of nature and so forth and uh, and there's a, a difference between being a steward of nature and within some reason uh, you know trimming the forest for its health there's another thing just to you know build skyscrapers I'm going to scrape the sky I make my mark on the sky from the bottom of the earth to the top of the sky uh, so this is a very different idea than what Krishna is advocating here hmm. Hmm. if you want to if you want to control nature hmm, then you should transcend nature you should understand nature you can understand control the thing by understanding it this is a yoga for trans understanding, controlling nature by understanding it, hmm? its purpose, hmm? and so forth. And so, it's uh, he, he speaks about these powerful manifestations of nature in such a way that we that he says if you, you try it, you go in the redwood forest as I said, and you're thinking I'm the subject, matters the object. And suddenly, there's a reverse out, and you start to feel like I'm the object. The trees are the subject here. The ocean is the subject. The world. I'm small. Just if you, if if by that contact with the powerful manifestation of nature, Krishna says, identify that as me. What is that doing? It's making me feel small, and I am small. That's the fact. Hmm? I am very small. We're all very small. But we don't, you know, always think like that. Hmm. We're trying to make our way, make our mark. Hmm? so to speak, uh, you know, fight against uh, nature, and uh, which is, seems to be threatening our existence. You're going to die, the storm is coming. And it's true, but the reason that we experience that as problematic is because we're fighting against nature. You go the other way. Death is ended by this. What is death? It's a problem. Why is it a problem? Only because the things that I'm attached to and the identity that's formed by that attachment I can't take with me. So it's a problem. If I have no attachment, what's the problem? 
you can end death. That's a fact. Hmm? Death is a thought, in a sense. Obviously, there's a biological transformation and so forth that, that goes on that we could call death, but it's more than that. Hmm? So he speaks now in a real down-to-earth way about nature. When people go, sometimes atheistic people, they say, yeah, I know, I know what the religious experience is. I've had that too. I've gone in the forest. I walked to the top of the mountain. I went, ooh, and I felt like that. I have the religious experience. But I don't have to posit any gods and goddesses and all those other superstitions. And they tell me I can't do this and I can't do that. You know, you know, it's just a yeah. Nature's powerful. Nature's powerful, beautiful, and it's fascinating. And I don't deposit something beyond nature. It's fascinating. But the point here in the Gita is this is only an entry level way of starting to experience all that. I can can be, so to speak, in all that the Godhead is. Hmm? When that experience, when we 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 it, it, we are afforded a sense of our smallest, and then we hone that in yoga to hone that. Hmm? In other words, they don't really know what the experience of the of the of the, the the real religious or spiritual experience is. Yeah, I mean, I've gone to the mountain, and I've gone to the ocean, and I felt what I'm talking about. But to hone that in yoga and enter into a trance, that's a whole different thing. To close, to stop the mind from wandering, to keep my mind from wandering, that kind of thing. Hmm? Hmm? That's not easy to do. Hmm? If a powerful manifestation of nature can help me to think, it's beyond thinking. The world is so big. It's be- I can't know it all. I can't know it all. Maybe I'm just trying to know it, and that's getting in the way. Maybe there's a, you know, go in another way rather than conquering kind of way. As I say, if you love, so if you love nature, nature will tell you all her secrets. Her secret is, oh, there's something behind her. There's consciousness. There's a source. Hmm. So on and so forth. So, this. To hone that, this is what he's speaking about here. That's not the sum and substance of religious experience. That's an opening. Give you a, a chance to, to, to get some sense of, there may be another way of going about this, that I am the subject, I will conquer all. I mean, obviously we don't consciously think like that every day, but we kind of act like that. Hmm? And the world tends to, you know, in some quarters, really consciously think like that. It's, it's, it's problematic. Hmm? So here Krishna is positing of, of, of this powerful manifestation of nature you can say is me. This one, this one. So the idea is that, that, that by the sac- these sacred texts, they speak about the world, the objective world, in such a way as to foster the, the, the knowing of thyself, for what you are beyond nature and experiencing the, the, your potential to love. So 
these are not books that we that that are like science books to go and look at. What is nature like? You know, the sun is this far away, the moon is that far away, and and all these things, and we know all these things, and then we put these this knowledge in the hands of technicians, and then they they give us more things. And so, this is not a book for that. Hmm? It talks about nature in a mythic kind of way, Hmm? but in a real way. Do you understand? In a way that by by looking at the world, a sacralized universe, if you will, we can come better to know ourselves. We can learn to be lovers and so on and so forth. Ultimately culminating in this this possibility of this kind of divine union and intimacy with the Godhead that is so extraordinary that Krishna himself, as I said in the previous chapter, is kind of on tilt, thinking, though they love me like that, I'm theirs. I belong to them. I'm purchased by them. Hmm? I'm their friend. I'm their lover. Hmm? Uh, something like that. Very extraordinary, very high idea. So by speaking about the transcendence and the imminence back and forth, this is what Krishna's begun to do in the ninth chapter. He's playing it out in the tenth chapter. And further he does so in the eleventh chapter as well. And then in the twelfth chapter he speaks about directly about bhakti-yoga. Hmm? Again, this is the theological section of the text. So, I've talked for a while. I want to end with that. And um, and as an afternote, I, I want to invite everyone here to come visit us at our, at our community in uh, western North Carolina. It's called Sargrahi, means Sar, means essence. Grahi means like who who seeks the essence, essence-seeking kind of spiritual uh, community, if you will. And it's it's in the forest, and there are trees there, and there are creeks, and water, and so forth. And it's a very conducive um, environment, very favorable kind of wind, if you will, that gives support to the kind of things we're talking about. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, when you go there, even to visit, just kind of unplug a little bit from you know, the circular life that we have, that which is like following these thoughts in the mind. How will I protect myself? How will I take care of myself? How will I get a better this? How will I improve that? How will I pay the mortgage? You know, just like turn that off, make that, you know, push that in the back, you know, make that the music at best. Hmm? If not, turn it off altogether. We try to create an environment there, which of course is just a developing project, but um, that would be, would be conducive to that. And you come and, 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 and discuss these kind of things and Think about them, chant with us, and so on and so forth. Um, um, you know, somebody wrote to me, and I mentioned this before, and I'll conclude with this. Said I wanted to come to your community. You know, in, in North Carolina, I heard you were developing there, but at the same time, I'm the, where I am. You know, I, it's a trying situation, but I don't want to run away from the need to tolerate. Because tolerance is a good quality, and it's it's recommended in the Gita, we should, you know, cultivate tolerance. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu recommended it: be tolerant like a tree that stands there, even if you chop it down, it gives you shade when when you do so. So how do I harmonize this? And I said, you have to tolerate. That's true. But you also have to find a favorable environment for your spiritual practice, and then in the context of that, tolerate. 
We don't have to look outside for more tolerance. We don't have to look for some situation to have to tolerate. Hmm? In any situation, you're going to tolerate your own mind, and your, you know. So you create, you know, or find a favorable environment that's conducive for good, good company, like-minded persons, spiritual practice, and in a community, an environment, a setting. The great sages in our tradition, they found very beautiful places to do their spiritual practice. Hmm? Very, like you go to Sanatana Goswami's place in Madan Mohan, if you walk up the stone there, the old steps to the top, and you look out at the Jamuna River Delta and so forth, and you just think what this was like 500 years ago. You think he picked a good place to do his meditation. This is nice. Hmm? Right? And in the context of that, well, tolerate. It's still going to get hot there. It's still going to get cold sometimes there, for example. Hmm? But we don't have to go look for tolerance <laughs> unnecessarily. So find a favorable environment for, with like swajatiya, snigdasya, swajatiya, affectionate people hmm? who are like, like-minded. Hmm? And in, in a practical, physical you know, environment also that's Conducive. This we're trying to create for the for the for the sake of um, to help others. Hmm? The the environment, the industrial society. I mean, it has its advantages, it has its disadvantages. Hmm? It's um, a little over the over the top, so to speak, in my humble estimation. And in the least, in uh, well, in the optimal, I should say, in the full measure, it, it doesn't provide a conducive environment for kind of things we're talking about, for experiencing what the subjective nature of the world is, which is ourself. It, 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 it ignores that, it denies that even in, in some circles. Hmm? So my, my Guru Maharaj was, was, was uh, uh, fond of this idea of creating you know, these type of communities that would be very um, sustainable and uh, favorable for spiritual culture that people could take part in that and then shine out in such a way that others would take take notice. We don't have to go and knock on everybody's door and and tell them that uh, you know they should be joining us, but just to, to take in such a way that people would want to say, well, what is it you do? You seem happy and fulfilled. You have uh, it, it, this kind of thing to... So, you know, do good to yourself. Charity begins at home, but what is the self? Hmm? Do good for yourself. If you do it in a really wise way, it'll be doing good for others. So, you know, it's kind of a grassroots idea, right? This is the message of the Gita. Change yourself. Hmm? What did Gandhi say? Be the change that you want to see in others. Are there any questions? Yes. Panentheistic. Resistance to it before was 
now, more obviously, part of something that it was doing. So this um, reason I use the panentheism word is because it starts to feel like like you are, okay, well, you are yourself and something greater than the self that you thought you were for, of course. Mm -hmm. But also that to sort of take it, approach it from the other direction, that God or the creator is Krishna, whatever. I mean, the, the creator is, is something greater than you and is also you. Mm -hmm. But this concept, most religions, especially Abrahamic religions, take this concept as absolute blasphemy. Uh -huh. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, I mean, Christianity has, is, is a, has a real uh, bifurcation between the self and God, and the world and God. Hmm? Um, that's true. And um, at the same time, there are some panentheistic, uh, there are some persons, I should say, who have a panentheistic view of Christianity. Hmm? They, they, they try to draw that from some texts in the Bible. There was one uh, years ago, a long time ago, what was his name? Eckhart. Hmm. No, not Meister Eckhart. This is a long time ago. He, I think was excommunicated from the, ch from the church for maybe for his panentheistic viewpoint. Meister Eckhart. Hmm. Must have been German. Um, but there are others today, too. Um, maybe that fellow who passed away recently, Peacock was his name, incidentally. Uh, <laughs> was a Christian who posited panentheism. But, I mean, these are people who are, um, I want to say, thinking and theological and not mindlessly participating in some dogma that the implications of which they have would, would run away from if they heard them. Um, I'll tell you a funny story in that regard. I was used to lecture in Chicago years ago, and um, at one center, and there was a, a couple, um, who, a Catholic lady who used to be a nun, and a Presbyterian minister, who married, and they, he got uh, stationed at the Presbyterian church just down the block from where I used to lecture. Hmm? And so his wife, um, who's a good friend of mine, uh, uh, she used to see me in the robes and whatnot, so she used to come over to the, the center and then listen to the talks and so forth. She got very charmed by, by it all, and then she'd go home and tell her husband the things she was hearing, the lectures and so forth. And So then he started to factor into his lectures you know, what's that f phrase you came across in the Bible the other day? The verse about, yeah. Uh, did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What else? Uh, divide the mother from the daughter, father from the son. Yeah. To divide, came to divide the mother from the daughter, the father from the son. That's not, those aren't the verses that people like to quote too much. In other words, 
I guess Jesus is, is it Jesus? He's saying, you're not this body, hmm? if you will. Uh, you know, your identity based on attachment to a son or a daughter is, is limited. You, know, you should have universal love. It's not that you're, this is my son, I love him. I don't like him because he's your son. You know, so to transcend that limited sense and, and so forth. So anyway, he started to preach about, you know, these themes in the, in the church. And all the old ladies in there, amen, they, uh, they wrote to the, you know, his superior. <laughs> and he got transferred to the Bahamas. <laughs> I think it was Bermuda or something, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I, I think that, 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 um, that there's a, there's a problem in, you know, in one sense, you know, you talk about environmental crisis. There's a, there's an argument to be made uh, that that it has a Christian kind of or origins, if you will, because the church separated uh, nature and the animal kingdom as part of nature from man entirely, hmm? and uh, saw nature as that which was to be exploited by man for man's happy life, and that God would be pleased if man was happy. It's a very man, human-centric, you know, kind of idea of God. It's kind of like that idea of, you know, give me things, and I'm, I'm God's son, and so, you know, our children, we're his children, if we're happy with things, and he'll be happy, and, uh, and so, really, what does it have, you know, last like, uh, you do the drama, another saint in our tradition, many, many years ago, was uh, sent to Europe for the first time to give these kind of ideas. And, and in Germany, they held a, they invited him, some Christians, to a uh, drama, a theistic drama. And so in the drama, God was up in the balcony, right? So everything was going on on the main stage, and every now and then God would come out and say, I bless you. <laughs> I said, I condemn you, you know, something like that. You know? So very, you know, God's over here. Man's over here, the world's over here. Even when they meet up here, they're, they're really different from one another. They're, they're not the same. It's blasphemy to say that, you know. And, and he said, they said, how do you like this drama? He said, it was pretty interesting. But in our theology, God's on the main stage. He's not on the balcony. Mm -hmm. We get close to God, in other words. We have a likeness to God. We're of the same nature. We're, we're constituted of consciousness. There's a possibility for intimacy in union and love and so forth, that these were very kind of foreign ideas uh, to them. So, I tell you humbly in my experience that that religion in the world, there are major religions, the more uh, you, you, you look deeper into them for underlying uh, esoteric truth, uh, the heart of the whole thing, the closer you get to India. Hmm? And then before you find Christian sects incorporating vegetarianism, uh, even incorporating reincarnation and so forth, these kind of ideas, and, and panentheism and so forth. Uh, India is the mother of, you know, of religion in the world. I mean, it's, it's the most religiously diverse. And uh, within Hinduism, it's extremely diverse, but uh, inclusive. At the same time, I mean, India's a mess in many respects, too, and they don't, you know, 
pursue their tradition and so forth. But you take like science, the you know Christianity gave birth to modern science and it, it get, I want to say licensed it. The church was in control of the world. Hmm? And it licensed science as like, yes, science is now going to demonstrate from the natural world the existence of God definitively once and you know, for all or for and it became Christianity's biggest nemesis, if you will. So I want to say that modern science was born as a Christian. Then in its adolescence it became agnostic a little bit. Hmm? With Newton and so forth, the classical physics, God started to like become, well, he's there, but he doesn't have anything to do with the world. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's like, he set it up, it's like a clock, it goes around, but he, you know, there's no place for him to enter in here to, to do anything. This is deism, you know, from, from Christianity to deism is a huge theological um, leap. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no son being born who performs a miracle in the world or anything like that. So, you know, your Einstein so we're kind of going in that direction. So in adolescence, it became kind of agnostic. Now in its adulthood, it's becoming athe- become atheistic. And in its old age, if it's to survive, it'll become a mystic. Mm-hmm. It's mystical. It'll become a mystic. It, will have to, it has to grapple with what is consciousness. And it, you cannot... You, <laughs> You know, consciousness is primary. You can't you can't get away from that. You cannot turn it into something. You can't turn it into matter. You can't turn it into something that arises out of uh, out of out of out of something else. It is primal. You can't even theorize about that without consciousness. Consciousness is behind the theory. You, it's it's very illogical hmm, to try to extremely illogical to try to displace consciousness from its primal causal position that it's always held in human society that is universally intuitive in human society that I th- I think something and then I do it for example hmm? that's a, I'm talking about in a very rudimentary way so I say anyway that's my prophecy science if it's to endure will become mystic hmm? and this is the meeting point really between religion and science hmm? It's a it's it's a it's a meeting point. Um, you have as much dogmatic scientism as you have dogmatic religion, and somewhere in between is the thinking person. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it's very different than you find in some of the Abrahamic traditions. But at the same time, each of the Abrahamic traditions has an esoteric kind of a let's take Islam, okay. People can rant and rave about Islam and its problems and how it's a warring, you know, kind of religion, and you know, people are uh, say things like. But if you go inside that, you find Sufism also. Mm-hmm. Sufis, they're like you find it all the basic tenets of Advaita Vedanta, for example, from India, are you know, largely found in Sufism. And they're the mystics. That's a different. You go to Christianity; they're also mystics. Some of the saints, for example, you know, they were mystics, and you see the way they talk about it, think about it. What is the, you know, the the Pope finally kissed the Saint Francis's ring or something, or the other way around? I don't know what it was. They, 
you know, they wanted to, he wanted to excommunicate Francis, who used to talk to birds and stuff, you know. And, yeah. Weirdo. You know. Uh, you know, and it turned out that, well, you know, he was, he was a saint, right? Hmm? More than the Pope. So I think there are those sides to that. The difference that I would say, and Hinduism has a fundamentalist side too. There are Hindu fundamentalists and, and, and they're, you know, as unappealing as Christian fundamentalists. But I think at the same time, objectively speaking, that Hinduism has such a strong foundation of mysticism uh, you know, underneath it. The whole religious orientation in Hinduism of ritual and this and that and whatnot is all um, uh, taught to be engaged in such a way that you can ultimately come to a mystical orientation. Hmm? Uh, whereas sometimes in Christianity, if you start preaching about mysticism, they think it's like you're talking about the devil or something like that. But so there's a there's a more of a natural kind of a uh, progression in Hinduism from a religious orientation to a mystical orientation. It's taken for granted that's where we're supposed to go. Hmm? So therefore, you're going to f- you find a stronger uh, base of mysticism. Then that's the part of Hinduism that came to America that was you know attractive in the '60s and, and got some ground and so forth. Yoga, you know, it, it, for example, is about experiencing now, not doing something good and then closing your eyes and hoping you know you end up somewhere else. It's about experiencing the more that you are now, so to speak, experiential orientation to spiritual life rather than a believing, hoping orientation. So, yeah, I think, uh, uh, it, I think that in, it, all these traditions are ways of talking about something that transcends whatever you could say about them. But, I, but personally, I think Hinduism says it best. <laughs> Nonetheless, even though the words are limited and, uh, and philosophy is, is limited, mind is limited to explain something that's beyond mind, words are limited to explain something beyond words. And the panentheism, um, yeah, it says, yeah, you are God and you're not God at the same time. That's pretty interesting. Hmm? It's like it's like I said to give the example. Let's say that you have the you know you open the window and the sun comes in the room. Say, ah, the sun's coming in. That's nice, but that's true. The sun's in the room, but the sun planet's not in the room. That'd be a problem if it was, right? So there's a, the rays are are the sun, but they're different from the sun too. You could take the rays, but the whole sun, you got to become a ray. Hmm? All right. So if you become, you know, you realize what you are, unit of consciousness. Then you have capacity to interact with that son of consciousness, something like that. Oh, sorry for the long answer there, but I think uh, we should probably stop there. We talk for quite some time. We really appreciate all your uh, questions, interest, and patience. Thank you very much. Jai Sri Ramadava Ki Jai, Sumat Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai, Oud Bhaktivinoda Ki Jai, Oud Premanandi.